Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I have got Darcy with me as usual. Darcy, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I am in Birmingham, and um, some really cool things happened over the weekend. I got to take part in some Birmingham history, which is really awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming we're going to cover off on that in an episode upcoming. We are. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Uh, there, I can imagine there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the southern areas, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really good things that are happening, I think, around the country, especially in the south. And I genuinely think this is one of the first times in my life I've ever said I'm proud of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, wow. So, yeah, so doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I stayed up pretty late last night, uh, just drinking and watching movies. And nice. I saw fireflies outside for the first time <gasps> since I got here. Oh yeah, we call and them lightning it, bugs in the south. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but um, <laughs> it's I've only seen them a couple times in my life because they don't have them on the west coast. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um. So it was. Uh, what the heck is that? Oh, lightning bugs. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Those are so cool. We used to catch um, them when we were little. It's a stand. Yeah. And their, their butts light up. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're actually, they're actually beetles. They're part of the beetle family, which is interesting. Yeah. And they light up because they are trying to attract mates. That's when they, they, they do that. It's mm-hmm. like a little mate, part of the little mating ritual, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and I heard from some people, though, that they are kind of on the verge of becoming extinct or getting more limited or like something's happening where they're being threatened just because environmental hazards and spraying and all oh, kinds really? of other stuff. Um, I know that there is a, a kind of a group of people in the area that I live in that are now advocating on behalf of not using any kind of lawn pesticides or fertilizing mm. things or not. They're just kind of advocating... Uh, for an all-natural type of a use for your lawn mm-hmm. so that they can protect these little guys and other things that are so cool about living, you know, in the area. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I haven't thought about it before, but I guess, I mean, there are certainly fewer lightning bugs around now that I think back. I mean, there were like a lot when I was little, and now I don't, I don't hardly see them very much at all. Yeah, they were certainly out in abundance last night. And awesome. I just don't know what the season is for them, but I love them. I think they're so cool. I mean, I would say warm weather, but I don't know if that's just because I remember them from, like, summers as a child when I was out of school, or if that's actually because it's their season, you know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, anyway, last week's episode that we posted about Lori Vallow just blew up, and the Day, I think the day after I posted the episode, the news came out that they, the police did positively mm-hmm. identify the bodies as JJ and Tylee. Mm-hmm. So a very, very sad um, ending to that whole saga. And I just kept looking back at the pictures of Lori and Chad. And Chad, eh. But looking at the pictures of Lori and wondering how in the hell could somebody kill their own child like that? And yeah. granted, we have not proven that she has done it in a court of law, but <clears throat> I think there's pretty much, <clears throat> I think there's pretty much a consensus that she did it. 
That's that's kind of what it sounds like happened, you know, and obviously we don't have all the details. We'll we'll find out what happens in a trial, but yeah, it it definitely sounds like she did it and maybe in like a Diane, what is it, Diane Downs way where she did it to be with a be with Chad and um obviously they were buried on on his property, right? So he is clearly has some involvement as well. Right, but I think this is going to be a very complicated case because of the religious aspects of it all. And I think that there's going to be an inability of people to look at it in a cut and dry way for that for that matter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's the the fact that she, you know, felt as though she was doing it to save them and and this whole thing. And I wonder, you know, has she had a psychological evaluation and like it's just a very, very complex, twisted, weird case that just keeps getting weirder each day. And I imagine that as the weeks continue to to unfold here that we're going to get some new and interesting facts on this when she starts being deposed for trial and things like that. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what uh, psychological evaluation, um, what the doctors say, because... And it, is she going to plead the fifth or is she going to talk to them because she feels like, you know, it's her right of religious freedom to do what she did. So, yeah. Interesting. Interesting mm-hmm. case. I guess we'll see how that unfolds. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a case in here that you recommended, but I actually looked and heard an episode of forensic files on this case and actually had it on my list of ones that I wanted to do for oh, nice. a variety of different reasons. Um, the first of which is it's the first case that used DNA evidence to not only exonerate a man, but also convict a man of murder. Mm-hmm. So uh, very interesting. And it also has some aspects of it that are extremely interesting because it talks about it talks about open prisons and it talks about the rates of recidivism for open prisons and a couple of other issues. So um, let's just jump right into this case. I got a lot of my information from a few articles online that I will post in the show notes. And then I also listened to an episode of Forensic Files and it was, I believe, the Footpath Murders episode. And let me set the stage for you. This was this crime happened. Well, these two crimes happened on a deserted footpath. Ugh. Let me start over. These two crimes happened on a deserted footpath on an early morning. November twenty second, nineteen eighty three was the first event. It's England. It's November. It's got to be a little chilly. It's Narborough, England, and a hospital worker comes upon a body. This is a quiet village. Narborough is. And there's about 6,000 residents. The crime is extremely low. I mean, it's 1983. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that that Britain had very much crime during that time period. But, yes, it was extremely low. And 15-year-old Linda Mann, she was quiet and popular. She was in school at the time. She enjoyed spending time with her friends. She left her house November 21st, 1983, in Narborough to walk a mile or so to a friend's house. Now, 
When I did the research online, some of the research said that she was getting home from babysitting, walking home from babysitting, and other research said she was walking home or to a friend's house. So there's some conflicting information out there about what exactly she was doing. But in any case, she was walking through an area that was considered relatively safe. It was calm and quiet, and teens often use the footpaths in the community to kind of do shortcuts and do kind of the exact same thing. Mm And on that particular night, she took a shortcut instead of her normal way home. And again, some said she was babysitting, but others said she was visiting friends. She did not return home that night, though. And her parents, again, some sources say she her parents immediately called the police when she didn't return home at the time that she was supposed to. And others say that they went out and searched for her first. Okay. And then called the police, but I think, you know, it's neither here nor there. They eventually ended up calling the police. And the following morning, a local hospital worker finds her body in an open field. Mm. She was per- partially dressed and I believe naked from the waist down. This was a secluded footpath that she was on, and the locals knew it as the black pad. Her jeans had been removed as well as her underwear. She had a scarf on, and it had been wrapped around her neck and used to strangle her. Hmm. She was also sexually assaulted. So I think, you know, that part was everyone knew that was coming. But people in the community were worried and super scared for the young girls in the town after this turn of violent events. But a search of the scene didn't really pick up much in the way of evidence, but the autopsy did. There were no outward signs of a struggle at the particular scene. Typically, when you have someone who's come upon in a way like that, usually they'll fight and there'll be signs that there's been a struggle, maybe, you know, marks on the ground where a person tried to get away and maybe Mm -hmm. scratches, bruising, things like that. But they didn't find a lot of that on the body. And there were few signs of violence during the sexual assault as well, which led them to believe that this poor young woman um, died very quickly. The conclusion was that she had been killed first and then raped, which just sounds awful. Um, the police were able to pull a semen sample, though, from Linda's body. so that, But DNA testing wasn't a thing back then. Mm-hmm. It's 1983. They could test for blood type, but they couldn't really do anything with the DNA profile back then. They did determine that the blood type found in the semen, though, was a very specific type, and only 10% of the men in England had that blood type. So this was mm, sort of helpful, but not really, because you could potentially have hundreds and thousands of men in the area that had that blood type. Yeah, to like 10% of England's population, still a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So Linda's body was found next to a psychiatric hospital, so they thought maybe there was somebody from the hospital involved. And, and as I'm thinking this, I'm thinking, can you imagine walking along a dark path at night next to a psychiatric hospital and how freaking creepy that would be? It sounds like a dare. Like your friends would dare you to do that. You Number know what one, I mean? It doesn't sound like that's something you would just do. I wonder if she knew there was a psychiatric hospital there because sometimes yeah. they blend in pretty well. And, you know, maybe, you know, she just didn't know what that big building was. Mm-hmm. And number two, I think that psychiatric hospitals. Psych, ugh, I think that psychiatric hospitals don't have the same connotation there that they have here. Oh, they've been around for much longer there, 
And yeah. I think that maybe it's looked at not quite as serious, or it was back then, not quite as serious as it is here, is my guess. And they probably also don't have, like, the history, or the, they may or may not have the history of, like, abuse in psychiatric hospitals that we have maybe. here in the States. I don't know. But um, although some people did think that there was a potential link between the psychi- psychiatric hospital and this young woman's death, woman's death, a, death, a, lot, death a lot of people ended in that was probably the one that committed this crime. Mm. The case was even more interesting, though, because it was extremely rare in this area for a complete stranger to ambush somebody and murder them because crime rates were so extremely low. And we all know that during this time period, there was definitely a conception that everyone in England was super friendly and super polite. And I think there kind of still is. Mm -hmm. I don't think people necessarily, with the exception of the Jack the Ripper stereotype, I don't think people think that British people are unfriendly or violent (laughs) they're just so polite right yeah yeah so i think that people really were having a hard time with wrapping their mind around the fact that someone had committed this crime with this young schoolgirl, like right out in the open basically i'm sure but because the crime rate is so low in that area the police did were able to put significant effort into each and every case and just run down every single friggin' lead. I mean, obviously, if you've got 200 cases versus one case, you're going to be able to put a lot of time and effort into that one case and really do it right. Mm-hmm. Neighbors used caution and practiced safe habits, and they pretty much lived in fear, thinking, when is this person going to strike again? Are they going to strike again? Is this a one-time thing? And Linda was buried not far from the crime scene. And during the funeral, police set up surveillance, suspecting that the killer might come back to take a peek or, you know how that is, they often think that killers will come back to the scene of the crime mm-hmm. and check things out. And she was married so, or excuse me, she was buried so close to the crime scene that they suspected that this person was a member of the community and would be present there. So they were really inspecting and taking a look at the people that were coming in and out of that funeral. But The investigation went on for over a year before hitting a dead end. And they were just like, okay, we don't have any solid leads on this. And so it was gradually turning into sort of a cold case type of a thing. Linda's parents, though, still continued to do interviews and hoped for justice for their daughter. And they did this for about three years before the case just kind of wound its way to an end. They couldn't find anything on it, so there was nothing else they could do at that point. And then July 31st, 1986, another schoolgirl the same age as Linda disappeared. Dawn Ashworth Mm. had left her part-time job at a newsstand and walked home. Again, she took a shortcut. She went down a path called 10-Pound Lane, which was kind of an overgrown footpath. And you wonder to yourself, my goodness, why did she do that? And evidently her parents had told her, don't take shortcuts, always make sure you're with friends. And that's sort of what they were telling all the young girls in this area. Do not walk alone. Walk with a group of friends. Make sure you're always out in the open. Don't take the shortcuts. Stay away from those secluded footpaths. And yet this young woman took the footpath and ended up gone. By 9.30 p.m., mm-hmm. when this young girl, Dawn, did not come home, her parents called the police Their worst fears were confirmed when two days later the police found Dawn's nude body under bushes and less than a mile from the location where Linda Mann had been found three years prior. 
Similar to Linda's case, Don had been strangled and sexually assaulted. However, in this particular instance, Don had been injured pretty extensively in her general area, and this indicated a pretty violent attack prior to her death. So this young woman had put up a fight. Bless her little heart. She was Hmm. not going down easily. Again, they found the semen samples, and it was the same type as the blood person who had killed Linda Mann. Other similarities between these two cases were, number one, the location. Both were on the footpath in a similar area. Not the exact same area, but a similar area. Both the girls were teenagers at the same age. Both had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Both had been walking alone. Both were from the same locality. Both were found in the same type of area. And both attended the same school. Can you imagine going to that school and Mm. how freaking scary that would be if you were a young woman? No. I mean, no. Like, that's just... And wondering who was next. It would, it would literally feel like you're being yeah, targeted, yeah. yeah. Um, again, the police, the media, the parents encourage these young girls, do not walk alone, only travel in oops, oops, stay safe, whatever you need to do to stay safe. Unfortunately, though, Dawn's family had given her the same advice and she hadn't followed it. The police launched an investigation into this and got straight to work. They immediately got notification there was a witness that saw a young man in the same area the same time as the murder. So Mm. unlike the last case, they have a pretty good lead right away. And this lead was a young man, 17 years old, named Richard Buckland. He was a kitchen worker at the psychiatric hospital near the spot where both girls were found. So Mm. there's a lot of links, a lot of connections here that are putting these two together. And so they found this Richard Buckland guy. They brought in this guy as their prime suspect. And what was interesting about him is he knew details that had not been released to the public. He had no alibi and couldn't even remember where he'd been on the night of the murders. And he's only 17. Yeah. Yikes. He also had a reputation for trying to scare girls on the way home from school and that kind of a thing. So he was known to enjoy jumping out and scaring them and just kind of doing things like that, like hiding behind a tree and scaring girls until they screamed or whatever. Hmm. But they sat down and questioned this guy. And after about 15 hours of questioning, he confessed. They tried to ask him if he did both crimes. He confessed to the second crime, Don. Okay. The murder of Don Ashworth, but he did not confess to the second crime. He said, I didn't have anything to do with that. Hmm. At this time, the University of Leicester, Leicester, excuse me, the University of Leicester, scientists were working on doing things with DNA. They had recently discovered some critical new means of genetic profiling with DNA. They were using the individual genes and genetics and kind of doing this genetic fingerprinting project. And they had used it for a immigration case and for a paternity case. Hmm. And they thought that it might be helpful here because they had the, the semen samples. Mm-hmm. And so they thought maybe they could use this to identify this person specifically and to identify if this young man had killed both girls. Mm -hmm. So the police then took the semen samples to the lab and they're, they're really hoping to cement their case against Buckland here. Mm -hmm. 
And this sort of analysis, though, had, this sort of analysis had never been done before, let alone used in a criminal case. So I think everyone was kind of holding their breath. They're like, oh, my gosh, is this going to work? Like, are we going to be able to use this? Is the court going to accept it? Because we all know that when you use a scientific method in a court of law, you have to have established practices. Right. You have to have different things in place in order for them to take this as a scientific method that can be used and admissible in court. And they wanted to make sure they were doing everything properly and correctly in this case so that they could use this evidence in court. Yeah. Testing now could identify an individual with just the smallest amount of their DNA, either semen or blood sample or hair roots. DNA is a complex substance known to be present in all living cells. So these code the instructions for how to make a human body essentially. And no two people have the same DNA except for identical twins. Mm -hmm. Scientists at the University of Leicester were tasked with taking this semen from both the deceased girls and copying it, excuse me, and comparing it to the blood from Richard Buckland. And sorry, just real quick, this, um, the semen sample that they found only works to match um, DNA, I think at that time, if the, if the semen sample, like if the person that contributed to the semen sample is a secretor. Is that right? Like you can type the blood, but it's um, but you have believe. to also be a secretor. Yeah. Bef- yeah. Right. But they were going to use the DNA. They were hoping to use the DNA in this case to provide the profile of a killer. And the first thing the scientists found was that the same man had murdered both women. So the two DNA samples matched specifically. They pulled the genetic sequencing from the the semen on both women during their sexual assault and discovered that it was a DNA match between those two. And next they found that Richard Buckland was not the killer. Even though he confessed. His DNA did not match. Yes. And police at this point were extremely shocked and they immediately doubted this kind of newfangled technology because they're like, no way. Like, this right. guy confessed. He knew all these crazy details about the crime. There's no way. Like, this has got to be wrong. But at the same time, they had no choice but to release Richard Buckland after four months in custody. Mm-hmm. And in this particular instance, Richard Buckland was the first person to ever be exonerated with DNA wow. profiling. So essentially people in this case were also like, wow, if it had not been for DNA profiling, he would never have gotten out of jail. He would have been found guilty and spend the rest of his life in prison, even though Mm -hmm. he did not do it. But And that's an interesting way to think about that, too, because it's interesting, like what the what you pointed out in that because nobody knew what DNA was and how to how it really worked, they were more likely to believe the confession and doubt the science than what we do now, which is, oh, well, clearly it was a false confession. Right. But he knew so many details about the, yeah. the murder that it was there's just there's no way. And why would he confess? If he didn't do it, yeah. why would he confess? Because there's just, there's not very, there's some, but I just don't think in that instance there were very many cases in that area either where people confessed to crimes that they didn't do. Mm-hmm. And they start to look at this poor young man and they see that he was learning disabled Oh. And they also think that he had seen the body and he had perhaps come upon it first before the other hospital worker because he worked there, mm. that he had seen it. So he knew the wow. details because he had seen and discovered the body before the other person who reported it. But hmm. 
Interestingly enough, the police decide to conduct a DNA manhunt. It's kind of a little DNA dragnet of sorts, which had not been done Mm -hmm. before. So they send letters to all men in the village and around that area within a certain radius between the ages of 13 and 33, and they ask him to give blood and saliva. Now, the DNA search was voluntary, but police suspected that the real killer would try to get out of testing. Yeah. And the DNA testing would only be conducted with those who had the same blood type as the killer. Okay. This was their attempt to kind of flush the killer out of this village because it's not that big of a place. And they're like, we should be able to narrow this down pretty doggone quickly. Mm -hmm. So more than 5,000 men volunteered to give blood and saliva, all except one dude. He was a worker at a local bakery. His name was Colin Pitchfork. Hmm. He was a 27-year-old baker, local guy of sorts. Mr. Pitchfork had a criminal history of indecent exposure and had been referred to a local hospital in Narborough for therapy. Hmm. Now, I don't want to give too much away right away, spoiler alert, but, I mean, typically exposing yourself to people is, like, the first in a line of exacerbating crime that turns into one thing and then leads to the next thing and then leads to the next thing and kind of accelerates into more and more violent crimes. It's usually the first step in that process. Absolutely. If you know your history and your um, crime stuff there. But Mr. Patrick had a criminal... Oh, I already said that. Um, Pitchfork lived in a nearby community and was married in 1981 to a social worker and had two sons. His criminal infraction happened before he was married and he got to work as a baker in 1976 and he worked there until these murders happened. He was a skilled sculptor of cake decorations and wanted to open up his own bakery at some point. He was known to be a good worker, excellent timekeeper. I don't have any idea what the hell that means. Does that mean that he just showed up to work? Yeah, was he just never late? (laughs) What does that mean? Uh, And that's what it says. It says he was an excellent timekeeper. So he like he did his work efficiently. I just don't really know what that means. Maybe all of his cakes were like on time. I don't know. For, for real. Yeah. But he was known to be a little bit moody and also had sort of this habit where he couldn't leave women employees alone. He was always trying to chat them up and flirt with them and ask them out, even though the guy's married. Yikes. So because of his known history with police, Colin persuaded a co-worker to take the blood test for him. Mm, interesting. He said... He said he didn't want further police exposure because of his earlier criminal record. He was like, I know they're going to try to single me out unfairly. And so he asked his coworker, Ian Kelly, to take the test for him. I definitely did not kill these women, but I'm pretty sure they're going to think I did. So go ahead and not. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So he spins this tale like he talks to Ian Kelly, who lives outside the area. And would be able to give blood without suspicion because police wouldn't have pulled him into this dragnet. Mm-hmm. And Pitchfork had told him as well that he had already given blood for someone else in a similar type type of a situation. So this person has a criminal history. I gave blood for them. So now can you give blood for me? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Why would he have given blood for pretty somebody un- else? That's pretty unbelievable, right? Yeah. Um, police needed ID for blood testing though. So the men created a fake ID for Kelly by taking their passports. They went and got a passport picture. They cut it out with a razor blade and inserted Ian's or they inserted the pitchforks picture into Ian Kelly's 
passport, and the police went for it. They didn't notice anything different. Yeah. Can you believe it was that easy to well, just simply change that? They probably weren't looking for, like, fake IDs. Like, that's that's something I don't <clears> – But I mean, I'm not a big rule breaker, but that's something I wouldn't even, like, think to do. So maybe – I don't know. Maybe they just weren't thinking about that. I don't know. I don't know. In any case, over 5,000 people came and gave blood samples, and none of them matched the murderer. Hmm. Yeah. So then about a year after Dawn's death, Ian Kelly, the guy who gave the blood for Colin Pitchfork, the baker, Mm -hmm. was at a pub having drinks with coworkers. This was August 1st, 1987. Okay. And this late 80s in in that era were probably quite interesting. But in in any case, they were probably out, you know, drinking heavily, getting that whiskey Mm -hmm. in or doing Guinness, pints of Guinness or whatever. And... Kelly inadvertently kind of tells a coworker that he took DNA test for Colin Pitchfork. As we all have done at some point in our lives. He blabs. He spills yeah. the beans and is just like, hey, I took this DNA test for Colin. Do you think he was like trying to whisper a secret, but he was really like yelling it because he was drunk? Probably. <laughs> Did I tell you I a secret? <laughs> I, I don't maybe that or maybe like he was trying to chat this girl up because he was trying to flirt with her and he was like hey you know I'm a badass I gave blood for this dude oh, or, boy. in the DNA test like I think he was probably trying to be braggy about it that's like, probably more accurate yeah trying to impress trying somebody. to get this girl to like him yeah and she was like this woman that overheard I'm not sure if it was the girl that he told or if it was just some other girl like the chubby friend who the ugly Aww. chubby friend who was like, I'm getting revenge. He didn't want me. No. I'm telling on him. She was doing but the she right went to the thing. Police. Anyway, the girl went to the police and told them this little tidbit, and the police locate Colin immediately and start to question him. And <laughs> surprise, surprise, he immediately confesses to killing both girls. Mm. He knew he was caught. Yeah. Evidently, he'd been following the news currently, and they had had a bunch of stuff on the news about DNA evidence, and he knew he was caught. Hmm. It was like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to get out of this one. So September 19th, 1987, he's taken into custody. Police believe that he would have continued to kill if he had not been caught. Yeah, probably. So, like, he had this past of this criminal history that he had continued to... To, even though he'd gotten the psychological help for when he had been convicted of the crime, there was pretty much some pretty significant evidence that he had continued to expose himself. Mm-hmm. And Colin's wife had absolutely no idea of his history or his murderous activities, which I, I don't think is all that surprising. I'm sure he probably spun a pretty good yarn to her, too. Yeah. And police got some blood and DNA testing done for him, and he was a perfect match to the semen on both victims. Hmm. On January 22nd, 1988, he became the first person ever convicted in a case involving DNA profiling. He was sentenced to life in prison as a result. Because they do not have the death penalty there. Correct. And their idea of life in prison is very different. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into that in just a second. Then the idea of life in prison here. Um, and he did not get life in prison pr- without parole because they don't do that mm-hmm. there either. There's always the opportunity for parole. There is no life in prison, lock you up, throw away the key. There's always the opportunity for parole mm-hmm. in England. And I want to have a discussion about that in just a minute. But Ian Kelly, the man who took the blood test for him, was convicted of conspiracy to prevent justice and sentenced to eight months. 
He never served any of that time, though. They gave him a suspended sentence. Oh, okay. So that would so be like was, obstruction was, or something here? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Anyway, Doreen, this is pretty bad. I think it came out later that during his history, Colin Pitchfork had exposed himself to more than a thousand women. <gasps> And they think that it's pretty likely he did not admit to this, but they think it's pretty likely he had done this to these two poor girls as well. And they were like, oh, hell no, we're going to tell. And he was afraid that they were going to get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. And he had likely begun his criminal history with the exposures and sort of progressed to sexual assault. And he strangled both these young women to protect his identity because he knew he'd already been convicted If he got one more, he was going to be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. He pled guilty to the two murders and the rape, as well as one other case of sexual assault. So clearly this guy was out continuing to assault women, both physically and physically. Yeah. A thousand women. Can you imagine? It's a small village. There's only (laughs) 6,000 people in the entire village, and he's exposed himself to a thousand of them. He's, like, probably known as, like, the village streaker and it probably yeah. started as a peeping tom that yeah. we just don't know about like that's typically how that progresses is like peeping tom exposing um sexually assaulting and then murdering to cover up the sexual assault yeah so super weird super creepy um i think it's worth noting that in 2009 the life sentence in great britain was set at 30 years so Colin actually got a reduction of his sentence on appeal and they made his life sentence into 28 years before he had to, before he would be able to apply for parole. Okay. Okay. So that means that essentially life sentence in Great Britain at that time was 30 years if somebody got that sentence. But after 30 years, they could apply for parole and talk to the parole board and explain to them why they think they are recovered enough or, you know, the, the prison has worked with them and sort of rehabilitated them enough to where they could be released back into society. So Colin Pitchfork would have to serve 28 years before he was eligible to start asking the parole board if he could be let out of prison. Mm-hmm. And a little, another little side note was that in 2009, Colin created a sculpture in prison that was displayed in sort of a prominent music hall in the area. They paid the hall and the charity paid 600 pounds for this purchase. And this was absolutely outrageous according to Mm -hmm. the victim's advocates in this case and they made him take it down but evidently this guy was artistically talented which is weird but in 2016 the parole board heard a petition for early release for Colin Pitchfork and that was denied despite evidence of improved character he gotten he had gotten a degree he was an expert in transcription of printed music into braille and he was all around acting like he was a good guy and they said no you know, we're not going to allow you to be released early. But in 2017, Pitchfork was moved to an open prison in an undisclosed area. This is pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, his parole was denied again in 2018. And in 2019, he was approved for unsupervised days out. His next parole hearing is available in 2020, so this year. Okay, so let's, ta- let's unwrap this a little bit. Okay, because there's some interesting stuff going on here. Number one, this being the first case where they used DNA was obviously interesting Mm -hmm. to me. But number two, the life sentence issue, the fact that they do not put people away for life there. And number three, the open prison concept. And let me kind of explain what that is. It's essentially 
I did some research on this because I was like interested in open prison. And I believe they do this in Australia and Canada as well. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's probably like most of the Commonwealth um, nations that, that participate in this. So essentially open prisons have lower security than closed prisons are and are intended for prisoners who present a low risk and can be reasonably trusted in open conditions to not run off. They've been in use in UK since 1936, and they consider them one of the most effective ways of making sure prisoners are suitably risk assessed before being released into the community under license conditions. So, so they're basically put into these does, areas where they can walk out and do stuff. They can go to work, and they have to come back into the prison and go to bed at night in these open prisons. Okay, yeah, that was was going to ask is is can they get jobs or are they required to have jobs? Is it kind of like a halfway house situation? It's essentially that kind of a situation. Gotcha. And they also can apply to have unsupervised days out where they can take off for a day, an entire day, and then come back to the prison. I'm not really clear on exactly how that works, but it's interesting because I think that there are a number of people that would just be like, well, why wouldn't the person just take off? Mm Mm-hmm. And evidently, it just doesn't happen there. I imagine it's one of those things like when you're treated reasonably well, which seems like that is the case there, and it, we know it is not the case here, that you, it's not a situation that you want to escape. And especially if they're providing you resources there, like if you can get an education, you can get therapy, you can get support, right. then it is not a situation that you want to leave. Because if you just bounce... A, you're a fugitive, and B, you're not going to have those resources. Right. But it's interesting, though, because they say open prisons in Great Britain usually house nonviolent offenders, people guilty of white-collar crimes, or serious offenders who are coming to Mm -hmm. the end of their sentences. For serious criminals like Mr. Pitchfork, open prisons are often used as an important means of rehabilitation and assimilation into the community. The main purpose is to test the prisoners in conditions more similar to those that they would face in the community. Time spent in open prisons affords prisoners the opportunity to find work, reestablish family ties, reintegrate Mm -hmm. into the community, and ensure housing needs are met. For many prisoners who have spent a considerable amount of time in custody, these are essential components for successful reintegration into the community and are therefore an important factor in protecting the public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting, right? Um, And then what's also interesting is I kind of was asking you the question about people taking off, but evidently absconding rates have fallen dramatically in the last 10 years. They're um, by about 85%. So, like, no one, virtually no one leaves these places um, until they're allowed. And also rates of prisoners committing crimes while on day release is minimal. In 2012, for example, prisoners spent about 485,000 days on release, and the offending rate was 0.005%. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So, interesting. In Great Britain, the crime rates are, I think, a bit lower than they are here in the United States, but they have obviously found success as well as in Canada and Australia mm-hmm. with this policy and process. Otherwise it wouldn't be in place. Right. Yeah. 
So not only not having a life sentence for murderers, you cannot lock someone up and throw away the key for the rest of their life. You have to allow them the opportunity to show that they've been rehabilitated. And number two, that these people actually are able to be rehabilitated, that no one is beyond rehabilitation. Yeah. You can't just lock someone up and throw away the key. And so as a result, the rates of recidivism, which is people recommitting crimes after they've left prison, is extremely low there. Mm -hmm. And particularly when people are put into these open prisons. Now, I think there is a lot of concern about this here in the United States because people don't want to have schools or children or anything near these halfway houses. I think we kind of do it in a way where we have the halfway house. So they, they get parole and then they're put into these sort of homes outside of the prison where they're intended to have close contact with a parole officer as they're getting their life back on track. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think that a lot of these prisoners are ready for that kind of a situation if they've been in jail for 40 years. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I actually really like this idea of open prisons because it does sound like it is based in social science research. Like it sounds like somebody went out and did the research on this and made this proposal. And now they found that this is a, a, an effective way to reform and obviously they've been, they've been doing it since the thirties. Yes. So clearly it's, it's something that's useful and working. Exactly. And, and that is something that we obviously do not do in the States in terms of reform for, um, our criminal justice system, both in the way that we police and the way that we prosecute and the way that we, um, imprison and then the way that we parole. And so, I think that is really interesting. I think that that does show that there is some kind of, you know, evident fact-based evidence that this is a, an effective means of of um, rehabilitation, which is to me, which you know should be the goal of of prison. But that is interesting. And, and while we were while you were talking about this, that maybe it reminded me of, and I think we had a conversation on the show about it. Alabama, that law they tried to pass for sexual. Um, predators for people who were convicted of uh, abusing minors, sexually abusing minors, where they would do the chemical uh -huh. castration in order to be right. released from prison. And that was for a life uh, without the possibility of parole term. Um, and right. that kind of made me think about that because there is research out there that does show that people who, that pedophiles cannot be rehabilitated even chemically or, right. or chemically is really the right. only way because it does remove the urge, but the att attraction is still there, but the aggressive behavior is not. So it's interesting that he and, and that he specifically would be allowed to go to a, an open prison and be allowed to to have day passes and and things like that because they felt we that he do was able know to be rehabilitated. Yeah, yeah, we do know that that it is very difficult to rehabil rehabilitate pedophiles. Um, right. So it's kind of an interesting but, thing. Like I support the open prison idea, but obviously there's concerns about somebody who committed a violent crime, which he very clearly did. Um, and a crime that is an escalatory. I know, but I'm sure that they did extensive psychological testing on this guy before they put him in the situation where he'd be out in the community. Yes. I, I don't think that they didn't do that, but I struggle as well with the concept of life in prison without the possibility of parole, because mm -hmm. what motivation do those individuals have to do anything good in their lives, to, to be anything less than a complete asshole? If there's no hope, excuse me, and a complete jerk, if there's yeah. no hope that they're ever going to get out, why wouldn't they just turn into a murderous rage and kill people in prison and, and do bad things to the guards? And uh, 
I, it's like I there's nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I think, and I think that goes back to the differences in policy. Like, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say our policy in the states for prison is to reform and rehabilitate. I think it's more punitive in the states. Right. And and. But I do. I, but there's there are also. I mean, it's very rare. But there are, all, are also instances in um, the UK and Canada and Australia where you cannot impose a sentence greater than like thirty years or whatever. Right. But the judge will recommend uh, like a, a full like a life right. term. The judge will recommend that, but can't sentence that. So basically, they're saying he can he has to serve thirty years before he can apply for parole. But I would recommend you do not grant this person parole. Kind no, of thing. I think there is a special um, circumstance in these places where yeah. if it's a particularly heinous crime of a, a brutal nature, and, and there's a lot of other factors involved. I do believe they can, but it has to be. It's not right. supposed to be the use, the norm. It's supposed to be only on rare, rare instances. And I want to point out as well that because they have the possibility of parole does not mean that person's going to get out. The possibility exactly. of parole means that person goes and stands in front of the parole board and pleads their case. And other people can come in and say, this man brutally attacked my family. Don't mm-hmm. ever let him out. And the police will take that or the parole board will take that into account. So just because they have the possibility of parole doesn't mean that person's getting out after 28 years. They could conceivably serve the rest of their life in prison if the parole mm-hmm. board feels that is the safe thing to do. So I want to make that distinction. Yes. And the other thing is they probably don't have the issue with overcrowding like we do. So we do let violent criminals out because our prison system is overcrowded. They probably don't have that issue there because they don't arbitrarily sentence people to a life term for like selling marijuana three times or something, you know, like how they have the three strikes laws in some states. Um, uh-huh. So they don't have overcrowding. So they don't end up letting violent criminals out before they're appropriately reformed. So I think that that's probably an interesting thing too about that. Yeah, so, I mean, according to what I can see, Colin has definitely served over 30 years mm-hmm. in prison, and he's still in there. So mm-hmm. his sentence was only 28 years. So it's interesting to, to kind of look at this from that perspective and sort of evaluate. I mean, I, I do have questions about, you know, where would they put these open prisons? Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously no one is going to want to have an open prison in their neighborhood. Yep. But... The whole premise behind having an open prison is to reintegrate that person into the community so that they can get a job, Mm -hmm. reconnect with family, do all those things to sort of make themselves into an ideal and productive member of society. So I think that is where America tends to fail in relation to a lot of other countries is our ability to rehabilitate these people Mm -hmm. so that they won't reoffend once they are released from prison. I think that we really struggle with that. Yes. And I also wonder if in the UK and Canada and Australia and all these other places, if they um, have the restrictions and or, you know, societal stigma against hiring uh, convicts like we do here. I don't I don't know. You know, maybe it's easier for people to get jobs, too. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Interesting, interesting cases. I cannot necessarily say that I necessarily agree with the open prisons, but there has to be something that we can do to help rehabilitate people. I mean, I I think that if they did do something like that, it would have to be under circumstances that did not include extremely violent or sexual offenders. Yes. Like, especially those that had done things to children. Absolutely. But 
then again, how do you limit it? Do you say, you know, just nonviolent offenders only, or do you say just ones that had never had sexual assault, not murders? I mean, Mm -hmm. like, how do you draw that line? How do you cut it off? Where do you make that distinction? Who do you allow to be a part of the open prison? What kind of um, legwork is involved in that? What kind of psychological testing is involved in that? Is it how extensive is it, and how easy is it to trick the system so that they let you into an open prison when mm-hmm. you're not actually rehabilitated? Which are all interesting questions. Yeah, and I think part of that answer, at least to me, and this is somebody who has not studied prison reform or criminal justice system in, in terms of the way that we. Um, prosecute and imprison. But to me, it seems like you would really want to have a, a, a parole board that is actually invested in that determination and not um, a group of people who may not be subject matter experts or who cannot be lo- lobbied, um, right? financially lobbied, um, which we know does happen. I don't, I'm not saying that's pervasive, but we do know it happens. So, you know, those, th- like, get, you know, those kind of things would be something that I bet would be beneficial. Well, I also think in this country... We have a lot of people in prison who should not be in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is my personal opinion. And I think that prison system in this country is a money-making endeavor. Our prisons are private for the most part. We do have some federal prisons, but we have a lot of Mm privately-owned prisons that are making a ton of money for doing what they do. And it has become a money-making prospect for many different companies who are making a ton of money off these people that are in jail. So they have every single incentive in the world to keep that process playing out, Mm -hmm. to keep continuing to put men and women in jail who do not belong there or who may only belong there for a short period of time. But they have every incentive to increase that time and to increase to as many people as they can so they can make as much money as possible off that policy and off the prison. So... I think we also have an issue where we have minorities who are incarcerated in rates that are extremely high uh, when you compare the relation of their proportion to the population in the population. Mm -hmm. So what's going on with that? What is creating this? And we have got to reevaluate that on a significant basis. And we, we, it needs to be done now Mm -hmm. because there, it doesn't make sense. Why would, African-Americans comprise 80% of the prison system when they're only 13 to 15% of the population. That does not make sense to me. That means there's something wrong with our system. Yeah. So we need to reevaluate our prison system in the U S and I think that much is evident. Now, how do we do that? I don't know. Right. Um, but it needs to happen. And I think cases like this where you kind of talk about the, the, the differences and the way we do this with the way other countries do it kind of show and highlight there's something going on here that ain't right, mm-hmm. and we need to fix it. And this might be a solution, but how do you do that? How does that work? What does it look like, and when can it happen? Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, with all the stuff that's going on right now and all the calls for changes, that this is going to have to be something that's going to have to be addressed sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. So, in any case, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap the case up unless you have anything else you want to add. Nope, I'm good. All right. Um, in that case... We're going to ask you guys if you could please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We'd be more than happy to hear what your take is. If you have complaints, we'll hear that too. You can send us an email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We will drop that into the show notes. Darcy, social media. 
yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, and we post articles and uh, pictures and things like that there as well. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.